Welcome to the latest installment of the Sharp Best Ball Show. I'm your host, Todd Burrows, at Best Ball NFL, and I am joined by Michael Leone of Establish the Run. Michael has a tremendous history, obviously, in the DFS streets, and he has put it, been putting his acumen with numbers and a lot of things uh, into the best ball world. Best ball has definitely gone mainstream, and no one has stepped up more this year than established the run. Their content is amazing, and I absolutely think if you're going to be in the best ball streets, you have to check out Mike's Best Ball Manifesto. I think I've read most of it twice at least, and um, I, I think it's one of those things that you need to read multiple times. This show is sponsored by Underdog Fantasy and the biggest fantasy football tournament of all time, Best Ball Mania 4. Don't know what Best Ball is? It's simple. You just enter Best Ball Mania on Underdog's slick mobile app, draft your team, and that's it. Yep, it's set it and forget it as Underdog maximizes and optimizes your lineup weekly to create the highest scoring one. It's here, it's Best Ball Mania 4, and it's your shot at a first place prize of $3 million. Get signed up on underdogfantasy.com or via the App Store with promo code SHARPKIT. And they'll not only double your first deposit up to $100, but you'll also receive the Sharp Football Draft Kit for just $1. That includes over 40 exclusive fantasy football articles, which will help your chances at winning the $3 million grand prize. That's Underdog Fantasy Promo Sharp Kit. All right. Also, we at Sharp Football are giving away some Scott Fishbowl spots to subscribers and want to mention it. Um, so if you're still trying to get into Scott Fishbowl, we've got two invites to give away. And all purchasers of Warren Sharp's season preview book by Sunday, June 25th will be eligible, with one winner being chosen at random. All right, that's uh, pretty much it. I am bringing in Mike. Mike, how you doing? You had to sit through uh, the beginning, and uh, I'm real glad that you decided to do this. Yeah, well, I appreciate the kind introduction, and I'm excited to talk to you. You know, even though I see on on Twitter you're not drafting Jordan Addison, I think we can we can get past that and uh, have a good podcast here. You're uh, all right. So uh, you know, every every week. <laughs> I'm like Al Pacino in Godfather Three. I say I'm gonna get, I'm gonna stick to the questions and not get caught up in player takes. What am I missing with Jordan Addison? No, he's just one of the rookies that the rookie ADPs are so aggressive in general that it's been tough to get him. But I think Addison, if he's he can just step into that Adam Thielen role and, and run so many routes that it's it's a really good fit for where we might not have to wait as long as we normally do for a rookie to ascend. And Minnesota threw the ball a decent bit last year. They were aggressive. I think they're going to be aggressive again this year. I think they'll just be super concentrated. So, um, you know. They always have been. That's been one of the DFS um, things, you know, over the last couple of years. You could count on Jefferson, you know, uh, at one point, uh, at one week season, we were doing, uh, at least one Viking in every lineup because uh, before the prices went crazy. Um, all right. So you had, you know, speaking of DFS, you'd made your bones in the DFS world long before best ball became so popular. 
when you started to transition over to best ball, what, if anything, did you find to be the most difficult in going from your core competency over into the best ball? Yeah, I mean, in general, when I came to ETR, I think this is going to be my fourth NFL season coming up. I went from doing pretty much purely DFS to doing a lot more season-long fantasy football. And, you know, it's a different game. DFS, we have so much known information going into that specific week as far as player roles and how many points teams are expected to score and whatnot. For season-long, you got to look at a lot more like the macro trends. You know, we're joking about Addison, but rookies, like, and how they ascend over the course of the season and different player archetypes, mixing those in more. For, for DFS, that's in some ways not as important because, you know, once Jordan Addison or whoever it is, Garrett Wilson steps into a big role, you know, we can adjust and project that for the next week. You know, we like to be early, but if we're, if we're not early, we only miss it for a week and we can kind of catch it. For, for season long, there's, you know, a bit more nuance there and kind of understanding the, the archetypes. I'll use the word speculation. We have to, yeah, specu a bit more speculation. We have to speculate a lot more on on what those numbers are going to look like and who's going to fit into those roles. Yeah. And then for best ball specifically, I'm just fascinated by the strategy of it. I think it's like a much more fun game. Like it seems less strategic, I think to people on the outside because there's no lineup setting and no free agency, no waivers, but I actually think the draft itself becomes that much more strategic. And most people in space realize this in terms of, you know, if you spend capital early on this position, you might do things you know, differently throughout the course of your draft and how it's like pretty dynamic. Each pick affects what you do the rest of your draft, where season long fantasy sometimes isn't as dynamic. You know, you're just trying to stockpile like certain players of certain archetypes and stuff. And you don't necessarily care as much about the value or, or, you know, the, the base kind of production for players. You're kind of just swinging for upside guys and hope that they hit understanding that you have waivers. So I think the strategy in best ball is a bit more nuanced and, and dynamic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, and and I, 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 one thing that I'm better at than, say, DFS and analyzing hard numbers is kind of analyzing opportunities that other people might miss with the speculation part of it, right? Um, like you mentioned Addison, and I'm certainly not going to argue because there certainly is a reasonable case for it. Um, but K.J. Osborne is a guy who I don't think is terrible. I think he's played pretty well. And, you know, Addison showed a little bit of immaturity to me. Um, so those would be the – so you balance that with what you said, where with DFS, we're going to know what the role is after a week or two. Um, you know, so that gives a guy like me a better chance to, I think, compete than DFS, which is why I like it so much. Um, but at that being said, a lot of what I've learned in DFS has translated well over to best ball. What is your favorite thing that you use in DFS that you found translates very well? Yeah, I think, um, especially if you're playing the big tournaments, like the game theory side of it, just kind of understanding, you know, what your goal like in dfs it's really important to understand each lineup and contest that you enter like what your actual goal is and that's gonna that sounds stupid and simple but a lot of people miss that point they just make the same type of lineup no matter what type of contest they make and you know the prize structure the field size has a ton to do with that i think kind of taking that line of thinking 
to best ball um, and figuring out like what you want to do with the draft and what your goals are in a draft. And obviously with big tournaments like best ball mania four, it's going to be very different than if you're playing in a 12 person league. So I think that's been real helpful. And then even just scaling back, like just figuring out the best way to win right in DFS again depending what tournament you're in it's not always making the lineup that has the most projected points on average right it's like making the lineup that's gonna beat your opponents the most on average which is a subtle but key difference and um just kind of understanding like you have to have the right target um and then within your best ball drafts i think there's there's a lot of dynamic stuff and a lot of moving parts but kind of focused on you know what your end goal is all right, yeah, let's get into that a little bit. And you make a caveat in your manifesto. How many words is your manifesto, Mike? It's too many, Todd, okay. too many. I don't know. I just saw someone in one of the Discord said they printed it out and it was like 90 pages or something. I don't think it's yeah. really that long. They must have printed it with big font, but it's it's <laughs> it's, it's it's quite it's a it's a document you can come and you can skim and find the sections you need, but it's it's yeah, quite long. It, 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 it's a manifesto. Definitely. But um, with no superfluous parts in those 90 pages, I have to say. Um, the caveat that you make, and it's a really important one, it's one I pound every year, is that it's a very small sample size, correct? And that while we can gain things from it, it's, it, it's mainly good for what happened last year. We also have to start projecting based on what we're seeing on the draft board today as well. Correct. Yeah. And it's really difficult because, you know, if you just use last year's data, especially for like roster construction type stuff and like when to take wide receivers, when to take running backs, how many to take, if you use one year of data, it's extremely driven by specific player performances, like Justin Jefferson having an insane season or guys like Kenneth Walker and Josh Jacobs being late round running backs hitting. Like that's of course going to say, Oh, you should draft wide receivers early and running backs late. But it's more just saying that describing what happened in terms of those three players. And then if you extend the sample back further, you do reduce some of that noise in terms of specific player outcomes, but then it becomes less relevant as ADPs change over time, year over year. We've seen kind of an underdog specifically, the wide receiver ADPs rose a decent bit last year, and then they rose even more this year. So, um, and we're seeing that with quarterbacks too. Like there was a huge opportunity with the elite quarterbacks last couple of years. Now they're starting to get priced a little bit more appropriately. So that's going to completely change the data. So I always think it's really important to understand what happened exactly why it happened and not just speak anecdotally, like actually have the data to, to say like, okay, two quarterback teams took an elite quarterback did really well. But then with the upcoming year, you need to think cri critically and like, okay, well, maybe with the elite quarterbacks going two, three rounds earlier, that data is probably going to change a little bit in terms of like two quarterbacks versus three quarterbacks. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's one of the biggest things that I like most about best ball is that the field does always tend to overreact to what happened the year before, which opens up new opportunities every year to kind of analyze what, how the field has reacted to that information and adjusting our strategy accordingly. Correct. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we always see people overreact. Even with the caveats I put in my manifesto, I think sometimes people have the wrong takeaways. And I mean, part of it's fun is that we can have different takeaways from the same information, the same data. But 
uh yeah it's not there aren't like boxes that like you just absolutely have to check every single draft you know like there's concepts you want to be aware of when you're drafting but you shouldn't have like these static goals like oh i'm gonna take x wide receivers early because this worked last year you're just gonna get yourself in trouble especially if the field's adjusting yeah, I, I do try and, you know, I'm more about weighting my position groups and understanding where the dips and the valleys in the draft are for certain positions. So <clears throat> I still want to get, you know, a good four or five good wide receivers in the first 10 rounds. But how I get there could be different in every round. Correct, Mike? Yeah, I have drafts where I've drafted six wide receivers in the first six rounds. I have drafts where I've drafted, you know, two wide receivers in the first five rounds. Um, I'm all over the place. It kind of depends on the room. It's hard because, like, if you knew exactly what room you were in, you could make better decisions early. But you can kind of guess based on what people do early, what what you can get away with, what you can't. And to your point, like, there's dips and valleys. Like, there's, you know, Justin Hersey calls it the wide receiver dead zone, kind of when you get into, like, rounds 9 to 10, where, you know, we'd rather be taking better shots at these running back you know these late round running back candidates before they become real long shots late and the wide receivers have dried up and if you are taking running backs in that range like you know you need to to your point todd have like x amount of wide receivers by round nine and again it's not set in stone but understanding the peaks and valleys of of where the value is at each position is super important yeah. And with volume, it's okay to have outliers in your portfolio where you don't do that. Right. And, and you know, so the, it, it's um, because, and again, and this is what, you know, we're going to talk about slow drafts in a bit, but I've been doing a lot more slows this year. And I find that the, the volatility can work with you and against you, um, you know, especially as it relates to people jumping and taking players that can hurt you if you're trying to stack and correlate, but we'll get there. Uh, but that kind of reminded me of what you were just talking about. There are a lot of key points in the manifesto, which if we got caught up into, we wouldn't get through everything. But, um, you know, one of the key things I took away was you, you made the statement that you we're going to try in, in the to find the balance between optimizing teams for the playoff stretch while also being realistic about where we have the most control and comparing that to the need to also advance. Uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So there's kind of two schools of thought that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And one school of thought I think would be the playoffs are crazy unpredictable. So who cares about building your team for the playoffs? Like just get as many as you can to the playoffs because it's three basically uncorrelated tournaments that are super top heavy three weeks in a row. That's random. So focus on advancing as many teams as possible. The other end of the spectrum is you're doing like expected value calculations. You know, it doesn't take too much math to realize that all the pride that the majority of the prize pool is in week 17 and it's very top heavy. And thus that, week is absolutely critical um, in terms of the leverage that week has on your expected value versus any other week, any other stage of the tournament. But so the way I look at it is there are some things we can do to put us in a better spot to win those playoff weeks, to take advantage of the prize structure in week 17, like correlation, stacking our teams, considering weekly upside. 
while also acknowledging that it's a little bit more controllable to get ADP value at the time of your draft and make a smart positional roster construction, and then you're going to advance more teams. So that's the balance that I'm looking at. I think most people try to achieve that balance, even though a lot of times there's arguing over like playoff optimization versus advance rates, but the data definitely shows that you can do things that are going to help both. You can do things to increase your expected value in the playoffs. You can also do things to increase your odds of getting there. And I do think sometimes people undervalue the odds of just getting to the playoffs. Um, the more teams you get there, the, you know, the more likely you can run into like a unique combination without having to try and force a unique combination. Yeah. I, I always, I always get a, a, a kick out of the guys on Twitter who are totally galaxy braining it. Um, you know, there are some fundamentals that are, important. But um, you, you mentioned this a little bit already, but let's talk about the actionable information from um, the four points. The first one is stacking. You say that stacking has become table stakes, meaning almost everyone is doing it, and, and it has. There was a lot of arguing, though, last year about the value of week 17 correlations. What did your research show about week 17 correlations and do you also concern yourself with week 15 and 16 yeah my data showed that the, based on the number of quarterbacks you have your odds of winning in a stage in the playoffs whether it's 15 16 or 7 increase if those as each one of those quarterbacks is stacked so if you've rostered two quarterbacks the highest breakdown of best advance rate in the playoffs is going to be having both those quarterbacks stacked. The next highest is going to be having one of those quarterbacks stacked. The lowest is going to be having zero of those stacked. If we add in game stacks to that, what we see is the best you can do is two quarterbacks with that are both stacked and both have opponents coming back. So two full game stacks. And it kind of, it, the trend line is very clear and obvious that you should try to game stack all of your quarterbacks and the way I looked at this was not just looking at weeks 15 to 17 last year, because that's a super small sample size. I treated every single week, weeks one through 17, as if they could have been a playoff week and kind of measured what team tendencies gave you the necessary weekly upside to hit those thresholds that you needed. You know, I think the quarterfinals last year, you had to be top one out of 10. Semifinals was top one out of 16. And the finals was 470. This year, it's 441. I think the quarters is a little bit tougher. I think it's one out of 16 and one out of 16, the first two rounds. But it is. Um, yeah. So, but the more correlation you have, the better. Now, obviously, you don't want to come out in your drafts and only draft game stacks because you think you're like crazy optimizing for the playoffs by having these, these game stacks for every single quarterback because doing so might hurt your chances of making the playoffs in the first place. But once you reach the playoffs, Todd, the teams that have 100% game stacks are in a better position than the teams that have 50% game stacks. And those teams are in a better position than the teams that have 0% game stacks. Yeah. I, and I do think you can overdo it, um, especially late with, if you're taking flyers, um, I like game stacking multiple games. And, uh, you know, I, I said this on a podcast last night that I guessed it on, you know, I, I typically will take one or two options from each team in my main stack, even a Cincinnati, uh, Kansas City one. But 
every, you know, again, mixing it up. One of the sayings that I've been saying this year is be the optimizer, right? So I'm also, I also want to have a couple, you know, just overload week 17 Cincinnati, Kansas City teams, because I want to have different types of teams that could separate in week 17. Does that make sense? And is it in line with what you were just saying? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm letting the draft come to me. So there's going to be times where the correlation works out where I'm like super heavily correlated. I have other times where, you know, I, I didn't get a bring back, you know, on, on my quarterbacks. Like I, I'm almost always stacking the quarterback, at least in some way, but there's some variance there. Very similar to what I was talking about with wide receivers, how sometimes I start a draft with six wide receivers out of the gate. And sometimes I only have two in the first five rounds. Like I'm, I'm being flexible and sort of letting the draft come to me as far as putting numbers to it though, your weekly finals win rate. If you're looking purely at like a field size, similar to what we saw for week 17 last year, the optimum number of players to have as part of a stack in some way on your team was like six to nine players. So if you could have six to nine players that were, and that includes, and that includes either, all quarterbacks. That does not include the quarterbacks. It includes same team pass catchers and opposing skill players. No, but stuff. it but it is people oh, who are across all your quarterbacks. Yeah. Yes. So if you have, you it's know, not six to nine on one quarterback. Correct. Correct. Across all quarterbacks, six to nine players that are correlated with any of the quarterbacks, however many you take, whether it's two or three, and you know six, like that's not crazy. Like if you have two quarterbacks, you double stack them both, and you have a bring back. Like that's it, you know, you, you've hit your six and even like four and five gave you better win rates than you would expect on randomness. So you're not like dead just because you don't have an onslaught in weeks 15, 16, 17. So if the onslaught happens, you're getting ADP value while you're doing it. I think it's great to your point, Todd, to have like different dynamics in terms of the, the teams that can get there. But you also aren't like dead if you're only a little bit stacked. Um, and I've definitely, I mean, I, I don't want to jump the gun too much, but Looking at this data definitely made me a little bit more prone to three quarterback teams than I've taken in the past just to kind of make it a little bit easier to get the total number of stacked players up without overloading um, on one specific team. And I think you know, instead of galaxy braining, like what you got to do to get unique, just kind of having three different stacks where any one of them on any given playoff week could be the one that gets you through that stage and then maybe a different stack that got knocked out for most teams has advanced because you had that, that extra stack out that people who only took two quarterbacks didn't have. I'm not anti two quarterback. I just think it's closer than it would look. A lot of analysis shows two greater than three. I think it's pretty equal in a best ball mania type tournament. Yeah. I, I tend to only go three if I don't get someone in the top seven or eight. Um, if I take, you know, let's say I missed the first few guys, but I take a Watson or a Prescott if I don't get another guy of that ilk, let's say ending with like Aaron Rodgers, that that's when I start looking at a third. Uh, but I understand what you're saying because of the need to stack more, splitting it among more, you know, could be more optimal. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the critical thinking aspect where you, you also just like you don't want to take what roster construction things worked last year and blindly apply them to this year's landscape you also got to think through like who your quarterback is. Like if I have Anthony Richardson, yeah. you know, if I have Anthony Richardson or Justin Fields, I'm probably going to accept, you know, a lower stack rate than I would with Kirk Cousins. I was right? just like going to say that with totally Josh different. Allen even. 
right? Yeah, Josh Allen, even you get an elite quarterback there who can who can run, um, hurts to an extent. You know, you'd still like to stack these guys a little bit, but like a single stack might be fine. And if you don't get the stack, it could be it could be okay because really you're hoping for the rushing upside. Yeah, and and again, also you gotta take it with a, not a grain of salt, but you have to take into account the fact that your data is based on total numbers. It doesn't talk about when guys were taken, right? Uh, in other yeah. words, I mean, it does it. You, you do at certain point get into buckets and things of that nature. But, um, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not going to take a guy in the 20th round just so I can have the sixth guy. Um, if it's a guy that has a very little chance of being effective, right? There's always yeah. that give and take of what do you expect to get versus what you give up when you're trying to stack and correlate. Yeah, if you just throw on a couple of random players at the end who are correlated but are bad picks, it's not going to all of a sudden make your team optimize for the playoffs just because you can say that, you know, you took that box. I love how you did um, take the 17 weeks or 18 weeks, each as an individual week to try and uh, give you a larger sample size. But now the tournament is different in the sense that one third of the money is going to regular season prizes. How has that affected your thoughts on the tournament? And also, um, do you, have you come up with any strategies? Because it's it, it, I, I'm a lot of guys I know that are good are struggling to really think of strategies that are going to help you with season long uh, prize money. Yeah, I don't think it's a huge change because you're already trying to build like pretty high upside teams. And, and most of what you're doing to build a high upside team without sacrificing advance rate is basically optimizing for winning a regular season prize to begin with. Right. So um, sometimes I'll have a start that based on how it goes is like very clear that I'm getting a ton of correlated playoff values and stuff. And like, that might be a team where I think a little bit more like, I hope I get this team through the playoffs and I want it to be an absolute monster when I get to the playoffs or the flip side is like, I'm getting sniped on some of my correlations early. Like maybe I pivot to a team that can hit like a huge regular season ceiling has a lot of ADP value but I've sacrificed a little bit of the correlation that I would normally like to have in the playoffs. So again, with drafts being dynamic, you know, there's, there's two routes you can kind of take based on how it goes, which is like playoff optimization route, or just like making this the highest upside regular season scoring team. I'll say like that rarely happens. Like usually I'm somewhere in the middle of those two routes, but once in a while, just the way the draft goes, you can go, you know, pretty strong one way or the other. One example of something I've done, Again, the three quarterback thing is something where if I'm building more for the playoffs, I like to sometimes have that third stack. If I'm building more for the regular season, I kind of like to have the two quarterbacks kind of hope that they're steady and stable. And then that gives me more chances at skill players, which I think increases your regular season upside a bit more. Yeah. And it's harder to do it this year with the prices. I had a team that came in, I think, 64th last year out of all the best ball mania teams. And it had, uh, and it, this was intentional because I, I, it was a Mahomes Burroughs stack. 
And it, it also had Josh Jacobs. And, you know, it, it was one of those teams that everything just seemed to work out. But I came upon Jacobs because I had taken two quarterbacks and I had Kelsey and I, I forget which I think I had. Uh, I think I had, I had Higgins, not Chase. So, um, you know, I do think that in, you know, if you can get value on each parts of it, like recently I did a Hertz Burrow team where Hertz fell a few picks and Burrow fell, fell around and I already had the part, you know, the two parts. I, I, I do have seen kind of a supercharging effect with two elite quarterbacks at time, Mike. Have you noticed that? I haven't done too much of that, but I can see where that makes sense where like, that's what, you know, you mentioned Hertz Burrow, like you're just betting on those two offenses going nuts. Right. And then like, hopefully you, you know, hit the roulette wheel, right. Where it's a little bit of a ping pong effect where just the way the distributions work out, the weeks Philly are going off. Aren't the weeks since he's going off and the weeks since he's going off, aren't the weeks Philly's going off and that distribution works out in your favor. Um, but yeah, I'm all for experimenting with different types of builds again. Like, you know, especially if you're drafting a lot of teams, like don't be afraid don't, don't just be like, oh, the data didn't like this, so I'm not going to try it. Like, again, you want to think critically. The ADPs have changed. And again, like as you draft each player and like based on the ADP values, you kind of flip your brain. You're like, okay, this is a team where Burrow go, goes nuts and, you know, I've got kind of the correlated pieces and you're going to affect, you know, the, the way that you do that. Yeah. And also, obviously, this these aren't things that I try and do. But yeah. I'm also looking at who am I passing to make it happen, right? When I took Burrow, there was nobody there that I felt would have enhanced my team more than him stacking with, you know, I, the, the draft went Chase, uh, Devonta Smith, Hertz. And then uh, I think it was, you know, uh, like 5-3, five, 5-5. Five, five. I was sitting there and I was like, all right. You know, this will be different for this one team. Anyway, uh, part two of your manifesto was on, you know, we were just talking about this a little bit, about ADP value. Um, we all want value, and we also want these stacks and these correlations. What were your key takeaways on ADP value and how you mix it in with the need to stack and correlate? Yeah, ADP value, I was surprised. First, I looked at closing line ADP value, which basically means if Todd and I were drafting today and we took, you know, Ramondre Stevenson at pick 35, and then come September, the first week of the NFL season after the contest has closed, you know, he actually had, let's say, you know, New England doesn't sign any other running back and like the camp news is good and he's going end of the second round pick 24, we would have gotten six spots of ADP value in that situation. So that's closing line ADP value. It can have like a really big impact on your advance rates. I kind of broke it up into buckets of 10 buckets, which are basically just percentiles. The first bucket is your top 10th percentile in terms of the ADP value that you got 10th bucket would be bottom 10th percentile. And you can see with closing line ADP value, if you're in that first bucket, your regular season advance rate increases by like 50%. So that's huge. So you go from having about 17% chance of advancing to having like a 24% chance of advancing. And that funnels through to your expected value because, you know, the, the, the compounding math on that 
times your quarterfinals rate, times your semi rate, time your final was win rate. Like that's huge. I think people miss that aspect of it when they kind of dismiss advance rates is that it actually affects your expected value quite a bit, even if you aren't fully optimized for the playoffs. And even if you were in the second bucket, your odds of advancing increased by like 25%. But I also looked at like the real time ADP value, which is like if Todd and I are drafting Ramondre Stevenson and his ADP at the time of our draft is 27 and we take him at pick 30, we got three spots of real time ADP value. And I was pretty surprised to see that the results held pretty close to closing line ADP value. Of course, closing line is going to be more impactful because there's more known information. But even with real-time ADP value, uh, you know your odds of advancing out of the regular season were about 30% if you're in that first bucket, about 23% if you're in that second bucket. Even in that third bucket, about 13%. Um, it also helped increase your advance rates in the in the playoffs too, being in those ADP value buckets, um, especially if you're in the top two. So it's really important last year at least to get ADP value. Now a lot of people are seeing this and they're drafting a little closer to ADP than maybe in the past. So there might be some adjustments that need to be made there. But essentially, the market is kind of sharp overall and. Um, there, there's a skill to getting ADP value, which is like, you got to read your draft room. You know, if you take running backs early in a wide receiver heavy room, and then you have to take like five receivers in a row around ahead of ADP value, just to build up your wide receivers, you're not going to have good total ADP value. So I think there's more to it than simply clicking the top player in, on your draft board by ADP, but it's super important. Well, uh, you know, what, you know, again, I was asked this yesterday on a pod, you know, about it and, you know, one of the first things I do when I log into a draft room is I look at the top and I see what kind of value is up top on a guy, right? Because I'm also going to look at my quarterbacks. I'm going to look at my positions. I'm going to look at the players that are within those positions. Um, you know, these are, this is for slow drafts. Obviously if you're doing a fast draft, you're pretty on top of that. But, you know, if I see a guy that is 10, 12 picks be below ADP, he immediately becomes a lot uh, more interesting to me, not only for the reason you mentioned, which is huge, but it also helps you to, you know, it's those subtle differentiations of helping you get unique teams is if you're able to get guys who um, have slipped. So I, I, I agree with you. And I, I think that there's, you know, when you're on the clock, there's a melange, and I hate to use a fancy word, but there's just so many things that, you know, so many textures that you look at, and it's not always real clear what the best pick is, but you want to be trained and skilled at knowing what each one of those things are so you're making the most informed decisions you can. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely, and I, I like your point about getting unique, where a lot of times people try to do these really – they go against ADP value to get unique. Like I'd rather try and build a super team and get lucky once in a while and have a team that's unique plus getting the ADP value. You know, um, if you jump the gun trying to get unique, it precludes you from getting strong ADP value. If you get ADP value, it doesn't preclude you from getting unique. So I like to do it that way. And the other thing to consider, um, I looked at this by draft capital too. When I say draft capital, I adjusted the ADP value for 
the fact that picks early in the draft are going to be worth more than picks late in the draft. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So obviously getting value, you know, six point, you know, six spots of ADP value in round three is, is a lot more impactful than even like 10 spots of ADP value in round 10. So that's something to keep in mind. And it was difficult to, you know, some, sometimes the question always circles back to like, well, what's more important ADP value or, or correlation. And I didn't have a clear cut answer. Like adult to- diapers. It depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends because you've first, it's not like one decision, right? Like you can make a stack with one pick, but ADP value is the culmination of all your picks. So it's very rarely one or the other. Um, the one kind of firm takeaway I have though, is if you can get a correlated piece past ADP value, I almost always take it. Um, I kind of, that's when I'll put like my personal opinions about the players aside is like, um, let's say, well, let's say KJ, let's say you, let's say you love Jordan Addison. So you think KJ Osborne's going to stink, but right. you know, you've got a Justin Jefferson, Kirk Cousins stack already. And it's pick 160 and Osborne's ADP is like 152. I'm taking Osborne, you know, I'm kind of dismissing my opinions on Osborne versus Addison. And at that point I'm saying the market thinks he's a value. I know correlation is important. Like I'm going to put aside what I think is going to happen and just, you know, take structurally what gives me the best of both worlds. Yeah. And, and, and as you get older and you do a lot of season long in best ball, if you're smart, you get a little humble <laughs> because player takes are going to be right and wrong. I mean, real life general managers make horrible decisions every year. We're going to have years where our opinions are wrong so what I love to do is what you just said, you know, because I get a little bit of Osborne in case I'm wrong, but I get it not only in a stack, but I get it with ADP value. That does become a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, and I'll do that's things like a, that quite often. Yeah. 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 I mean, that. yeah, that's uh, – anyway. Um, so um, stacks. Reaching one of the big subjects, and again, this is in general as the draft goes on because it's um, more important to get value early. How much are you willing to reach for stacks and correlations at each part of the draft in general? Yeah, I mean, it's like a weighted tiebreaker at all times, and I'm more willing to reach obviously as it gets later in the draft for the same reasons that I just mentioned with draft capital because especially once you hit like round 14 on and so forth, like all those picks are worth very little because their odds of hitting like go so low that I'll reach maybe one or two rounds for ADP value. Like I'll take a 17th round pick around pick in round 15, you know, at that point, because I have to acknowledge that structurally, like these picks are very low hit rates to begin with. So I might as well take the correlation now early in the draft. I'm probably not taking a guy in round four, a full round ahead of ADP value just to get a stack. Like giving up 12 picks of ADP value at that point is really, really detrimental. I'd rather hope that, you know, that pick lasts 12 picks later or maybe even longer and get that stack. And then also that's where if you're willing to be flexible, you know, there's backdoor stacks that you can make at the end of drafts. You know, there's different things you can do if you're willing to be flexible. So I get, I get really greedy trying to have my cake and eat it too. I guess you could say Um, each situation is different. Like I had a, I don't have much like Casey Cincinnati exposure, but I had a draft where 
I started, you know, Chase Higgins and Mahomes fell later into the third than he usually does. And I took him. And in that draft, I didn't have Kelsey and Tony went early. So I took Rashe Rice like a, a round ahead of ADP where I normally wouldn't do that. But I kind of felt like for this team to win in the playoffs, if I have this Cincinnati KC stack, probably you're going to need a KC skill player. And I ended up getting MVS and Rice on that team. But like at least it was in the double digit rounds once I made that reach, you know. Um, but generally, I'm, I, I'm a little bit. I had familiar. a team. I had a team where I took Chase in the first, Higgins in the second, Mahomes in the third. I took Hawkinson in the fourth because he was the best guy there. And fifth round comes up and Joe Burrow's sitting there. And um, so was Aaron Jones. And I, I showed it on Twitter and most people thought I made a mistake not taking Joe Burrow. I took Aaron Jones because it gave me another week 17 good correlation. It balanced my team that I had a running back. You know, the, it was the fifth round. Um, and basically, I felt like the bet that I had made on that team was that one or both of Chase and Higgins were going to get there week 17 without Burrow, you know, and it was going to be Mahomes and some of yeah. the later guys. So, um, uh, you know, uh, would you say if you were in that same situation, would you have taken Burrow or Aaron Jones? I would have taken Aaron Jones for a couple of reasons. Um, kind of what you said, like you kind of already made your bet on Mahomes. Um, the other reason is like that's a lot of draft capital to invest early into right. quarterback position. So you start to hurt your advance rate a little bit. And the third reason is and Justin Herzig has talked about this a lot. It's like probably not great to have both your quarterbacks in the same game stack in week 17, right? Like, cause the idea is the game goes off. If the game goes off, you're definitely going to use a quarterback score. If the game doesn't go off, like neither quarterback probably did that well. And, and you're not going to, so I'd rather have like two different game stack chances, um, which is kind of what you set up there where you could maybe get cousins later. And now you've got this Minnesota green Bay game stack. So I think you made the the right decision. Yeah. And that's kind of that advanced thinking that you're talking about here. I think uh, one of your key takeaways in the study is the difference between drafting like around now uh, versus drafting closer to the season and slow draft versus um, fast drafts. Can you give us uh, what your data showed uh, between uh, because it is such a, an important thing that you have healthy players at the end? Yeah, it's really important you have healthy players. I'll circle back on that. I guess I'll say high level that I don't want to overplay the data here because I think what it shows is the edges are a little bit small. So like whatever is good for your life and you have fun doing, like I wouldn't stop doing it. I know for me, looking at slow drafts versus fast drafts did find you know, fast drafts to be a little bit easier. You get some put people in there that have dead teams that aren't drafting as smart, but it wasn't, you know, over even 150 drafts, it wouldn't make that much of a difference in your average expectation. So if slow drafts are easier for you to do, keep doing slow drafts. If you don't care whether you do fast or slow drafts, probably take that slight EV edge and do fast drafts. Similar with, you know, time of year to draft. You know, if you enjoy drafting now and you know you won't be able to get your drafts in later, you can do that. But my data showed that it's probably it makes more sense to draft in like July-ish, um, early August. 
And the reason is there's two big things when we look at for when to draft. One's like your ability to closing line ADP value. Um, obviously, the earlier you draft, the more chance for news to happen and break in your favor, the more upside hits you could possibly have on your team, the more you could have huge closing line ADP value. That's important. But the other thing is you need you need 18 players on your team, like come week one, that are actually contributing and have a chance to crack your lineup. Like having dead players kills you. If you look at once you make it to weeks 15 for the playoffs, the teams that have live players, um, and when I say a live player, I just mean a player who's not a stone zero, a player that could contribute to your score. The expectation increases more than any, more than stacking, more than ADP value. Once you get to like 13 kind of live players is break even. Pat Crane, I think, had like 15 live players on his winning team. The expected value goes through the roof. So the best way to have live players start of the season is to draft a little later. There's less time for injuries to have occurred between the time you draft and the start of the season. You also have more information to be taking players in round 16, 17, 18, who we actually know will be on the roster. You know, we took a lot of guys early last year. I always go to Tyrion Davis Price and Isaiah Spiller because they were really popular rookie picks early in the draft season. And those guys, you know, come the end of draft season, we kind of knew they weren't where we had hoped they would be on the depth chart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a smart strategy is to take that information, realizing that every year is different and put a percentage to how much of your bankroll you want to put into each month, trying to capture at least a slice of each one of the draft periods, but heavily weighting it toward the later being better. Um, all right, last question. I mean, I could I could keep you here for at least another two hours based on just all the great things you have in there, but there's always a lot of talk about hyper-fragility, Mike, including some recently on Twitter talking about going onesie at both quarterback and tight end. Um, you know, I, I think we need to make a difference between fragility and hyper fragility and, you know, smart and just, well, anything can happen. So, you know, YOLO, uh, your thoughts yeah. on that. I think if it was just a regular season prize, doing one at one of the onesie positions would make some sense. Like if you get the Kelsey season from last year, you just go one, just a regular season prize. Um, you just get more dart throws at the other positions that that has some merit with the playoff structure though. I really don't think it has merit. If you look at advanced rates from like all the elite tight end years, I think what people look at is like, if you just drafted the elite tight end by itself, the advance rates are really good. Right. But that's given they have these huge seasons. And if you look at those advanced rates on those teams where they took a second tight end, they were like just as good, if not stronger than if they only took one. And then once you get to the playoffs, that tight end, which is probably going to be highly owned if they had that type of season, you need them to be the optimal tight end because you have no other tight end. So your best case scenario is that you have a chalky player that does really well in these playoff formats. So I don't, it just seems really unnecessary to me. Um, I think it's forcing it a little bit where I'll go hyper fragile is more like the running back position where I'll take, I mean, the real extreme strategy is to only take three. I, I think I have one team that did that, but sometimes I'll just take four running backs. If I take them early 
And that's like, you're just betting on health and then you can really bulk up at the other positions. So I think that type of hyperfragility and some of the past data, you know, shows this is important, makes sense. But just going one at the onesie positions to me is like, on, you know, unless you're, you're like going for this hundredth percentile outcome when like three weeks in a might, row. I mean, that's yeah. the big issue for me is not only do you want a hundred percent outcome, you need it three weeks in a row. Um, because it only, you know, we've seen it like Josh Jacobs advance rate through the regular season was like 50%. But after week 16, where he didn't have a good week, he wasn't the determining factor and we, he wasn't going to be the determining factor in week 17. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. I really appreciate that you came on the pod. And I think a lot of your work, I can't wait to see some of the other things that you do. You can find Mike's stuff over at Establish the Run on Twitter at Two Hats Mike. And that's going to do it for this week. We will see you next week.